The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first one was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh, Jacinth, the twelfth, Amethyst. 
And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of one single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, like I was in school, you know, middle school, high school, I, I hated reading, just hated it. I, I don't think there was a single book that I read on my own. You know, like Harry Potter was coming out around then, which ironically is the books that I'm reading right now. But Harry Potter was coming out, and it was all the rage. Everybody's reading it. And uh, I was just like not into it, not, not really cool at all for me. And my mom was pretty bummed out about it. So one summer she hired uh, a tutor, not, not to necessarily tutor me in how to read. I could read pretty okay, but to like help develop a desire for reading. And so I just sit there with my tutor and we'd read books together. Uh, but something changed in my life when, in college when Jesus became real to me. I just got this desire to start reading. Um, I don't know what it was, and I, I've heard many people have the similar experience when you come to faith. You get this new desire to read and to study and to learn. And so I, I got that and I started devouring books. And I didn't really know where to start, and so I would just go to the Christian bookstore, and I'd go to what's kind of popular out in the main shelves at the moment and pick it up, which, in hindsight, uh, it's kind of a dangerous thing because there's just as much trash in, in uh, Christian bookstores as there is, like, in the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's kind of murky stuff. But I, that's where I started, and then I started finding these pastors that I would gravitate toward, and they were authors as well, started reading their books, and, and I graduated from reading these pastors and what they were writing to reading what these pastors themselves were reading. And so I saw this progression in my own life of just devouring books, started collecting books, kind of building my own library. Now, this is the point where I I was studying music in college, and unless you're just a killer musician, it's not a very lucrative business. Uh, you're, not, you're not just drenched in, in the cash flow. Uh, so I was thinking as a musician, uh, on, on the brink of going into ministry, I probably wasn't going to have a great large inheritance to pass on to my kids. And so I started thinking, you know, what, what can I pass on to my kids when they come? At that point, I didn't have any kids. I'm thinking, I'm going to give them a library. I'm going to curate some books that are formative for me, where I felt Jesus speaking to me through these books that were helpful in my discipleship, that were helpful for stirring up faith in my own life, and, and pass those on to them. And I think in many ways that that's going to be a more joyful inheritance to receive than just a, a cash. Uh, and, and so I'm collecting these books. And as I'm collecting these books and building my library, for many years I was not interested at all in reading fiction. Honestly, I thought it was kind of lame. I remember talking to my friends that they were into fiction and following these series and 
It's like, dude, you're wasting your time. You should just be reading theology books. Read something that actually is going to do something intellectually for you. But a couple years ago, not long ago, maybe three or four years ago, I, I, I had the conversion. I, I converted from nonfiction to fiction. I started devouring novels. And, and the crazy thing is that I started learning just as much as when I would read theology books or books about discipleship and spirituality. I, I would learn just as much just in a different sense. And this strange thing happened. Like when, when I would finish a theology book, I would feel this sense of accomplishment. Like I, I conquered something. I, I grew. I, I have a better understanding of the world of God, of myself, and how all these things work. But when I would finish a novel, I had a different kind of feeling. Maybe you can relate to this. It's this, this mix of deep satisfaction, right? You, because for me, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to read a crappy book. I just don't have the time for that. And so if I'm going to read a book and get all the way to the end, there's a sense that it was a good book that I just get to a point where it's satisfying. The story was great. The characters were captivating. It's like something great about it that just satisfies you deep in the bones. But then at the same time, there's this, this sadness, right, because the story's over. It's ended. It's, you've stepped into this world, whether it be a fantasy world or, or some other parallel universe, and you've experienced a story unfold, but now you've come to the end. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many people gravitate towards books that are in a series, right? Not just these standalone books, but books that have a, a prequel, a sequel, a, and on and on and on and on. And so you can just keep on going and living in this fantasy land. We love the cliffhangers. Uh, we've come to appreciate the cliffhangers at the end of the book because it means that there's some suspense building for the next book that's going to follow. But eventually, those series come to an end. Like eventually, you run out of books in the author's fantasy world and you're left back in reality. I, I, think of it. There is no more Chronicles of Narnia. That's it. C.S. Lewis wrote it. There, there are no more adventures with Harry Potter in Hogwarts. That's it. J.K. Rowling is done. And so we realize that even with the best books and even with the most ongoing series, these good things are going to come to an end. But the Bible is a little bit different. The, the Bible has an ending. Like we, we have a front cover and a back cover, obviously. And so in one sense, it affirms that there's an end approaching, but it also contradicts the statement that all good things come to an end. See, Revelation, though it's the last book in the Bible, and, and we are here in the last few chapters of this last book in the Bible, the previous, I don't know, five, eight chapters have been kind of pointing to the end of something. If you've been with us, you've, you've sensed this, that there's an end date coming. There's an end of an era coming where all of the evil powers, Satan, the demonic forces, uh, the, the false prophets, the Antichrist, all of the false powers will be dismantled and destroyed. They will be ended. That there will be an end to the corrupt systems and powers and unjust governments that are riddled throughout the globe. 
In a sense, it's like what, what we've been feeling here as we get to the end of the book of Revelation is that this world that we know is like a condemned house. It's been, it's deteriorated over the decades. It's basically shambles. The, the windows are broken. Uh, the doors are crooked. The floors are slanted. In fact, you could probably peer through the floorboards and look from the main floor down to the basement. That's how corroded and decrepit this house has become. And so we've seen in the previous chapters how God is essentially demoing. It's demo day. If you watch, uh, what's that show? Chip Gaines and Joanna, right? They're, they're going into these houses. They're knocking them down, and they're, they're knocking out walls and getting it down to the bare bones. God has been demoing the world, getting it down to basically flattening it to the ground. Now, you might think that in just wiping it out, the world, that is, that would be the end of the story, right? God, God did his part by eliminating evil and sin and corruption in this world and sort of just a blank slate, right, scratching the whole plans of humanity, uh, get, getting away from any of that stuff and just saying, hey, we're, we're just going to blank slate from here on out. But that's not what God does. In fact, 20, chapters 21 and 22 show us that what God is doing is far from just creating a vacant lot. God is renovating, recreating, reimagining the world and humanity. And you can see it right away in verse 1 of chapter 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So it's gone. The sea was no more. And I saw a holy city a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, John sees this demolition of the world in a sense, but it doesn't quite fit the category that we would fit a, a normal demo, demolition in. The old earth is done away with. The sea that once bore the curse of Genesis chapter 3 flees out of the sight of God and in its place, a new heaven and a new earth appear. Now, when we read this, we're limited here in our English because we don't have the right English word for new that they would use here in the Greek. This is not a new as in uh, you would go get a new pair of shoes, completely brand new. Um, it, it's not, not necessarily signified by time, but this word, this Greek word is a, a qualitative sense of newness, right? If you had your favorite pair of new shoes, and I'm talking like really nice leather shoes, you wouldn't just scrap them and go get a new pair. You, you take them to a shoesmith or what are, what are they called, a tailor, a, somebody else, a cobbler, yeah, and, and you take them to him and it's like, I, I want these to be like new, you're not saying you want a new pair of shoes. You, you, want, you, want, you want to see him refurbish these shoes and, and adjust them and make them so they're qualitatively new. And that's what God is doing here. He's renewing the earth. He's renewing the heavens and the earth. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, it's not an end. Instead, the book of Revelation is a new beginning. It's a Genesis 2.0. 
Revelation is a new start for God's people in a new home. Now, few things are more powerful than the longing for home. You know what I'm talking about? You go on a vacation, as nice as the vacation is, you just can't wait to get home, be in your own bed, be in the comfort of your own walls. You think about it, there's so many songs and stories that revolve around this longing that we have for home. And you see, it's either a desire to get back to home, like the sense of there, we had the sense of being home and we lost it and we want to get back to it. And for many of us, that's been the case. Like we, we've grown up in, in a very homey type of environment. And we've moved out and, you know, we've grown up on our own and we've gone to college and done life and we're trying to recreate our own version of home now. Or, or in another sense, it's like you never had the feeling of home. I think of Harry Potter. That's just where my brain is right now. I, I've literally been dreaming about witches and muggles lately. But, but Harry Potter, you know, the story starts out, he's living in a closet with his aunt and uncle who just despise him. He doesn't have that sense of home. And the whole story is about finding that place of belonging. Home is the place where we're surrounded with people that we love and who love us. It's a place where we feel safe and secure, where stability is offered, where comfort is available, where our needs are met. And it seems fitting that anything less of that, any experience less of that version of home gives us this taste of dysphoria, like we're out of place, we're strangers, or even feel like we're aliens. Now, in one sense, the Bible is a story that's all about coming home from cover to cover. That's really what it is. It's a story about coming home. We see in Genesis chapters, the first three chapters of Genesis, God creates a beautiful home for humanity to live in. He creates this beautiful garden for Adam and Eve. Everything is abundant and, and, and lush there. They've got all the food they want. They've, they've enjoyed the benefits of living in close relationship with God. There's stability. There's provision. They have that deep relationship. They're protected under his care. There's a sense of security. It's everything that home was meant to be. And then in Genesis chapter 3, sin... That is, rebellion against God makes Adam and Eve home wreckers. Now, when we use that term uh, in our context, we talk about home wrecker. We're talking about somebody who's been maritally unfaithful. That just they, they, their sin has led them to find another lover, and it's caused the home environment to collapse. Failed marriage, the kids are confused, divorce is on, uh, on the precipice here, it's on the frontier. There's, there's a lot of chaos happening here. But, but this home wrecking that Adam and Eve do isn't, isn't marital infidelity. It's spiritual infidelity. They, they are not being faithful to God. They're refusing to obey him, and, and therefore their re rebellion against God gets them banished and cursed, and they become exiles in this world. They lose the very home that they were made for. Now, in the absence of Eden, mankind is striving to reclaim that. 
to, to, to recapture this sense of home. And so they chase the feeling of home by creating cities. Now, partly this is a pure attempt. Like this, cities aren't inherently bad, right? To, to have cities and to live around other people is an attempt at creating stability and safety and protection. It's, it's a matter of creating a culture of, of linking arms with other people and saying, this is, this is who we are. This is us. It's a way of being industrious and being creative and taking the raw materials that God has given us and crafting them and, and using them in a way that creates a beautiful place to live. But just as sin gets inside of everything and corrupts everything that's good, sin also corrupts cities. It becomes, cities become a form of rebellion against God, right? We talked about this a few weeks back with the city of, of Babel. It's, cities are a way for humans to say, you know what, God, I'm fine on my own. I don't need you at all. Like, we'll figure it out. I've got a guy who can, he can farm for me. He can get me food. I've got a guy who can get me medicine and take care of my sicknesses. I've got a guy who can help me with planning my budgets and using money in a way. It's like, I can do life on my own. And the more dense cities became with sinful people, the more rebellious cities became toward God. I think about it. I think it's some of the great cities in our country. Think, think of like Chicago right now. It's, it's called Chirac. Like there's so much fighting and violence and gangs. Think of cities like Las Vegas, like literally labeled Sin City, L.A., Seattle. Like these cities, these great cities, while they have a lot of beautiful and robust potential for goodness, also have a disgusting layer of corruption. Even the Quad Cities. And as this unfolded and people are chasing this desire for home in their cities, God appears to a man named Abraham. And he, he proposes something to him. This is uh, the, the, the new covenant. Not, not the new covenant, but a covenant. God says, hey, listen, what I'm going to, I'd like to be your God, and I'd like for you to be my people. And, and I'm going to give you Abraham. At this point, Abraham, he's an old guy. His wife is old. They don't have any kids yet. He's like, I'm going to give you a big old family. And I want to give you a, a land, this promised land, a land that's abundant and flourishing. It's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And, and Abraham, you know, if, if you're a Jew and you're, you're following the story, this scenario, this imagery points you back to Eden. But to gain this new home that God was promising to Abraham, Abraham must leave his current home. And this is really where the saga of the scriptures begins. It's this quest for home. And really, when you think about it, it's the undercurrent throughout the whole Old Testament. Like literally, almost Every story in the Old Testament is going on in the background. There's this, this longing, this desire, this pursuit of the promised land. You think of it with 
Genesis ends where God's people are, they've, they've gone through the promised land and they've gone away from the promised land. They've ended up in Egypt for 400 years. Moses comes up and God says, hey, I'm, I want to use Moses to take my people to the promised land. And so they spend 40 years wandering toward the promised land. Like, and they've walked past it a handful of times. And they finally get into this promised land. And it comes with one, one single command. Well, it's, it's one big command with a lot of smaller commands underneath of it. But, but the one command is, listen, I will be your God You'll be my people, and the way that you will know you're my people is if you obey me. That's it. Just obey God. Do what he says. But their sinful hearts, like Adam and Eve, leads them astray. They, they rebel against God, and rebelling against God, they lose the promised land. They become exiles, living in a foreign land, and there's a sense where they really are Aliens, they're sojourners, they're, they're lost in the wilderness again. And then they get it back, eventually. But even when they get it back, they're in constant conflict with other nations. And so there's a sense where they're physically in the promised land. They're, they're physically in the land that God had promised to Abraham, but the feeling of home has, le- has, has fled from them. It doesn't feel like home. Yet in the midst of it, they're still hopeful that one day they will have that experience. So those desires for home will be met. And, and they go back to the promises that God had made. The promises about a king who would come and rescue God's people and bring them to this new home. In fact, Isaiah and Ezekiel are, are, are prophets who speak of who this king is and what this new home will be like. They say, you know what, in this new, new home, there will be no more death. Now, that's good news for a people who have been constantly at war with other nations around them. It'll be a place of peace, of shalom, where a wolf, a predator, will be able to lay down in the same pasture as his prey. And the lamb won't feel any threat at all. It's a place of abundance, of prosperity, a place where... Weapons are taken and recrafted into gardening tools. And so there, there's still this promise of that home that's still out there. There's, there's hope that their homesickness would eventually end. That their longings, their desires would be settled. That Eden would be restored. Now enter here a homeless man named Jesus. All right, this is where things get a bit ironic here. Because Jesus comes and he starts telling people as a homeless man about this new home that God has for his people. In John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying that eventually he's going to leave and he's going to go and prepare a place for them in his father's house. Create many, it's a place with many rooms now, if I were to say the same thing to you, you'd look at me crazy. Like, if I come to you, hey, guys, listen, I'm preparing a place for you at my parents' place in Trainer, Iowa. I don't know if you're going to like it, uh, but, but it's happening. Like, we're, we're making a place for you. You'd be, I would bet that you're pretty disinterested in, in that sort of thing. And, but his disciples kind of humor him a little bit because 
They're like, what do you mean? I, we don't know this place that you speak of. We, we don't know the way to this place. But Jesus says to them, he says, listen, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel narratives, you know that the disciples are a little bit slow. Like, they're, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. But, but they eventually catch on to things and realize that this place that Jesus is talking about is not a geographical location. At least not in the sense that they would think of. They realize that Jesus is speaking of a heavenly home, the true and better promised land. Now, this is why Christians say things like this in Hebrews 13. We say, this world is not our home. Like, to, to a non-Christian, that sounds like, that sounds bizarre. Like, what do you mean this world is not your home? Where else would you call home? That's why, why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he, he self-identifies God and his people as exiles as resident aliens, people who are sojourning, sojourning in a foreign land. See, what this is is an indication as Christians, this place, there is no physical place on this earth that's going to feel like home to us. There's not. I, I mean, our, our homes, the, the places where you go to bed at night, might provide a foretaste but you still lock your doors at night, don't you? Like there's still evil. There are still threats out in this world that make you feel uncomfortable, that cause fears and anxieties. So as Christians, we're yearning for a home that's not here in this, this world. It's a home that's with Jesus. That, that, that it's a yearning for Jesus to come back like he promised and bring us back to that new home. And here in Revelation 21, John gives us a vision of this new home. And it's as if there's a big welcome mat out in front for us. Now, if you didn't pick up on this while Steph was reading, the, the pearly gates, right, the, golden, the streets of gold, this new home that John is talking about is heaven, and I don't mean that in a figurative sense. I mean that in a very literal sense. The place where Christians will dwell is in heaven. And you might recognize some of those familiar features of heaven. But I'm willing to bet there are some surprising features that, that chapter 21 lays out that breaks the caricature of heaven that we have. Now, typically when people think of heaven, they think of some atmospheric nebulous space, right? We're just sort of floating around like angels on the clouds. But here, John tells us that, that heaven is just as physical as it is spiritual. Do you know that? Heaven is just as physical as it is spiritual. Because in verse 1, we see uh, heaven is a new heaven and a new earth, that the two have become one. Now, this is contrary to the Greek philosophy that was running rampant in, in John's time. There was this the idea, and I still, it still infiltrates Western culture, where the physical is bad. 
Like, like there's something, because our bodies are weak and frail, we, Scripture even calls them uh, weak vessels. Like there's something about our physical bodies that we should discard and only gravitate towards the spiritual aspect of things. But God actually validates both the spiritual and the physical because he made them both. He says, no, 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 no. The physical body, the physical creation that I have made is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not something you just throw away. Now, yes, it has its flaws, but God, again, in this renewal, is making the physical better, more perfect. Now, notice that heaven, the way that John describes it, it's not described as some oceanside paradise. I think that's what we think of, right? When we think of paradise, we think of, you know, on a beach somewhere with a nice canopy, a gentle breeze, the clear blue water, right? I'm making everybody just desirous of a, a vacation to Florida right now or Hawaii. That's not how John describes it. In fact, John tells us that the sea is gone. There is no sea in the new heavens, new earth. Now, I don't know, that, that might be literal, but, but I, I think that's probably symbolic, what he's talking about, because in, in uh, Hebrew literature, in, in that time, uh, the first century, the sea was viewed as a chaotic sense of unknown, right? People would go to sea and they, they get lost at sea. They die sailing across the sea. So there's a sense where the threat of the sea is, is gone, But instead of this paradise on the beach, John shows us that heaven is actually a city, a holy city. He says it's a, a new Jerusalem. Now, cities, like I said earlier, were the, are the densest place of sin and evil in our world. Right? There's a density of sin within cities that you don't find out in rural Iowa or rural Illinois. But here in heaven, cities that were once used to rebel against God are now redeemed and are used for God. It's not, it's no longer the densest place of sin. It's the densest place of glory. Like that's one of the reasons why we love cities. Because even with all the brokenness and the sin that's in the city, in cities, the Imago Dei, the image of God is more represented than any other place. And you know a great city by its skyline, right? You, you, see, you see the skyline of Seattle or Chicago or New York, and you can, you can recognize it by its skyline. And here in, in verse 15, John tells us that the skyline is pretty much incomprehensible. The, the shape of heaven is actually a cube. And, and it, it lays out some numbers that are, I believe, are to be symbolic. But if you were to use them literally... It's a, a cube of no, 1,380 square miles, but also 1,380 miles tall, right? That's a killer skyline. And you realize, you keep reading, and you realize that we don't go up to heaven. It's not this beam-me-up Scotty sort of scenario. Heaven comes down. And you can count that there, there's going to be all kinds of new laws, right? We have, 
as we live on earth, we have like the laws of gravity, the laws of friction, laws of thermodynamics. You, you can guarantee, I can guarantee you there are going to be new laws in this heavenly cube. For one, it's 1,380 miles tall. So how do you utilize that space if you can't, you know, fly or something? But also there's no sun. Right? How do plants survive? How do, how do we find uh, a lush garden or, or play, like food? What's our food source? And really we could speculate all morning about what, what this heaven will be like. And the reality is we have a very limited knowledge about what heaven is actually going to be like. And in fact, I, I would say that there are going to be some pretty bizarre features in heaven. But we are also told enough about heaven to know that it's going to feel familiar. Because arriving at he in heaven feels like arriving at home. And today what I want to do in this time is, is hit on the comfort, the beauty, and the essence of this new heavenly home. Now science has pointed to a direct correlation between the stability of a home, and the success of a child. Kids who are in consistently unstable environments, whether it's due to poverty, divorce, abuse, insecurity, that there's a stress hormone that's released and floods the brain called cortisol. And when, when the brain receives a large volume of cortisol, it can wreak havoc affecting the brain architecture and impulse control. And this has a profound negative in impact on the physical, mental, social, emotional, and relational health of a child. This means that God has literally wired us. Every single person, every single child has been wired to thrive in a stable and dependable environment. See, the place where we can feel like we're safe, where we can practice vulnerability, where we feel like we're protected from danger, a place where we have strong relational bonds, where we know that we belong, a place where we know we're going to be taken care of and our needs will be met. These facilitate a child's well-being and advancement and growth. It's a place where we can be validated and affirmed. A place where we're challenged and taught so that we can grow and develop into the best versions of ourselves. And when you think about it, when the church when our missional communities are at their best, that is the kind of culture that we aim to embody. Because here, the church is here to help people flourish into the best versions of themselves. And the only way you can be the best version of yourself is if you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and you're learning to walk in Christ's ways. One of the pastors that I find most influential in my life his name is Ray Ortland, and he says, time plus safety plus gospel equals a transformative gospel culture. 
That's a place where people can develop as followers of Jesus, to spread their wings and learn what it's like to fly. So this is not a coincidence here because the church ought to be a signpost, a, a prototype for the culture that we'll experience in heaven. And John shows us all the stability and security that we need here in the new heavens and new earth, and he does it in numerous subtle ways. I'm going to fly through these because verse 10 begins with this. He, he says he's, an angel carried him away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he was showed, shown this holy city. Now, not only does the city have a killer skyline and a, a killer view, but being positioned up on a great high mountain, the city has the strategic high ground. Now, if you play any sort of combat or military games or, or if you paid attention to any sort of uh, ancient history when it comes to combat, you know that having the high ground is what you want to have when you're at war with somebody. Think about it. If, if, you, if you have the low ground and you're trying to attack those who are on the high ground, you're at the disadvantage in that you're having to exert energy to go up, not only against the enemy, but to, to go up against the hill to fight gravity. And so here, this holy city has a major advantage that if, if there were to be enemies to come and rise against it, to try to sabotage it, that they have the high ground. The, 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 the holy city has the high ground. Not to mention that there's a huge wall. And you see that huge wall in verse 12. He says it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lands. Now listen, if you want to see some continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, here it is. The walls of the city of the New Jerusalem are the names of the tribes of Israel. The foundation of which the city is built on are the names of the apostles. It's impossible for Christians to say, you know what, I, I like the New Testament, but I I'd rather not have the Old Testament to navigate through. You, you can't do that. God brings the old and the new together and says, and I'm telling the same story. Now, here we see the walls of the city. And we live in a time where there's a lot of debate about walls, right? A lot of debate. A lot of people have a lot of different opinions about whether or not there should be walls. But in the New Old Testament, in the first century, walls and gates were necessary for a city to, th to survive. In, in a lot of ways, the walls served as a fortress, the last line of defense. Like if you liked being your own self-governed city, you had to have walls. Otherwise, your enemies would come and conquer. And so these walls were often yards thick. I mean, thick walls built higher and higher and wider and wider with time. And then to top it off, well, this, this wall in the new city, if, if you kind of look at the conversion here, and it, the, again, these, these numbers are meant to be symbolic, not literal. But if we do take it literally, 
we're told that the walls of heaven are 216 feet tall. <laughs> That's a big wall. And the gates of the city play an important role too, right? It, it let, lets allies in. It lets trade come in. And you can have commerce going in and out from the city. But the gates also provide another barrier to keep the enemies out. And so they have strong gates. And on each side of the, well, each side of the city, there are three gates and each gate has an angel that's guardian. Now, I didn't talk about this, but when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, when they were exiled from Eden, God put an angel with a flaming sword to protect the Garden of Eden, to prevent them from coming in. You can have that same sort of imagery here. There's an angel standing at each one of the gates, keeping anyone from crossing the threshold that shouldn't be there. But all of this, all the walls, the gates, the angels is literally unnecessary because in the previous chapters we've seen that every single one of God's enemies has been destroyed. In fact, down in verse 25, we're told that sure these gates are there, the walls are there, but they're open all the time. Why? Because there's no threat. There, there's no fear of being overtaken. There's no threat of an enemy. See, the only people who exist at this point are people who are on God's team. And then again, for an added measure of security, we see in verse 15, an angel comes with a measuring rod made of gold, and he measures the city and the walls and the gates. Now, this, this is uh, pointing back to what we've seen in a previous chapter, in chapter 11, where God told John to measure the temple. Now, in measuring the temple, this was a sign of God's protection over his people. It, it's the same idea that God is protecting this city from corner to corner, wall to wall, from floor to ceiling. So we see that heaven is a secure place. It's a secure place. There's, there's no threats out there, but we also see that heaven is a well-resourced place. Work in the new heaven and new earth is not cursed by sin like the work that we have now. Right? M many of us, we experience the curse of sin in different ways, right? Whether, whether you work in a physical trade where your, your back hurts, your knees hurt, right? Just from working long hours, doing hard labor. Some people have desk jobs where they find a different kind of curse of, of trying to, to navigate, to use your mind in a way that, that's helpful, that advances your occupations, right? No matter who you are, your work is difficult, whether you're a teacher, a lawyer, chiropractor. And so here in, in the New Heavens, New Earth, with our work not being under the curse of sin anymore, this doesn't mean that we just sit around and play harps all day. We're not just sitting in heaven twiddling our thumbs and singing, though there's a lot of singing in heaven. It means that our relationship with work will change in the new heavens and new earth. Where we curse our jobs, where we dislike our jobs, work becomes a joyful hobby. For some of you, it means getting to pursue your dreams, the dream career. For some of you, you're in your dream career, and it means getting to experience that without all of the burden of, of, the, uh, of sin and the curse. 
New Heavens, New Earth is a place where we get to glorify God in working and utilizing our God-given skills. And so the relationship that we have with work changes. Instead of being workaholics, instead of using work to prove our worth and our identity, instead of work being a place where we're stressing out in order to get a paycheck to make ends meet, we see that everything that we need is provided in the new heavens and new earth. Verse 6 is actually a nod at uh, Isaiah 55. Jesus says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Now this is, again, like I said, going back to Isaiah 55 where this is this more, be- it's a, a more robust, beautiful uh, scenario here. It says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without cost. See, this is saying that everything that we need is provided for. There's no striving. There's no, I got to make this happen or it doesn't happen. Everything we need is in front of us. The curse is lifted with work. But, but this is a little bit of bad news for me because as the curse is lifted in the new, new heaven, new earth, occupations like pastors and doctors and first responders suddenly become, find out that their work is irrelevant, that, that it's obsolete. Like doctors don't have a job anymore because there's no more broken bones. There's no more sickness. First responders don't have any sort of crisis to step into. Pastors don't have any counseling to offer. In fact, we don't even have to teach the Bible anymore because we, we know God in his entirety face to face. Right, so if you're in a hobby, or if you're, in a, if you're in an occupation like that, you better start finding a hobby. Verse five, four and five point to this. It says, he, God, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. That's the curse. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things. Say all things. All things. I am making all things new. Oh, that gives me chills. That means every fear, every insecurity, every ounce of anxiety, every discomfort, every emotional pain, every physical pain, any single remnant of brokenness that we experience in this world is eliminated. That is no longer... Like right now, fairy tales are like the places that are happily ever after. In the new heavens, new earth, fairy tales are places that aren't like that. Like that's, that's uh, uh, not the true reality because in the, in the true reality, everything is set right. And let me just tell you, this, this is a passage that I just I wish I could sit down in for another 45 minutes. Because when we see that Jesus is wiping away every tear, that death is eliminated, that no more mourning or crying or pain or anything, that he's making all things new. You know what this means? 
This doesn't, this means that tears aren't just wiped away. That, that fear and brokenness is just gone. It means that God is paying back everything that we experience in this life. Every, every tear, every piece of death and loss, every moment of mourning and crying and pain, God is paying back those moments with interest. That's what he means. I am making all things new. That means that everything sad becomes untrue. It's not that just sadness is gone. It means the sad things actually become happy things. The things we shed tears over in mourning, now we shed tears over in rejoicing. If you've experienced loss, if you've miscarried, if you've lost a child, if you've lost a loved one, if you've, if you've lost anything, if you ever come face to face with the reality of the curse, this is a piece of scripture you just want to hold on to. This is the healing balm. This is the future reality that, that works its way backwards and changes the way that we see things in this life. It puts us at ease. It's in this new space that we thrive, that we become the most glorious and joyful versions of ourselves. Therefore, heaven is, just not, is not just a safe place, a secure place. It's not just a place of, of flourishing and prosperity. Heaven is a place of comfort in the purest sense. Now, this world has a lot of comforts that are, are fleeting that offer us. Heaven is not like that. Heaven is the legitimate comfort that we're all longing for, that lasts forever. But John shows us that this place isn't just comfortable. Like, we think of a comfortable place, comfy, and maybe, maybe it's a little run down. Like, e e you think the most comfortable couches are the ones that are broken in, Right? Those are the ones that are stained and, you know, they've got some wear and tear. That, that's not necessarily the, the vision of comfort that John paints because there's, there's also this vision of beauty that comes with it. Let's look at verse 18. He's talking about the walls, the aesthetic appearance. He says, the wall was built of jasper. And you might have to go and Google some of these things because, honestly, I had to. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like glass. That doesn't make sense to me how gold can be pure gold and also like glass. This is just a sense of the beauty that we don't quite fathom yet. The foundations of the, wall, uh, of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, sapphire, agate, I don't even know some of these things, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite. Barrel, topaz. I mean, like, look at these things. You literally have to go Google the beauty of these things, these, these gems. And the kicker is here. The 12 gates were made of 12 pearls, and each of the gates were made out of a single pearl. Listen, pearls come out of oysters, and oysters are not very big. These gates are huge. Like, what did I say? I don't even remember. Like 200-some feet tall. That's a 
big oyster. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The, each one, each gate is marked by one single pillar of pearl. Man, some of you, I, I've had the privilege of being in your homes. Some of you are incredible decorators. You just got lovely homes. Your furniture, your art, the vases, the decor, all of it. It just, it just works. And there's something about being in a beautiful space, something that, that's pleasing about being in a, an aesthetically enjoyable place that just makes you feel like you want to be there. In fact, the beauty of a place has a way of, of giving you the feeling that this is more than just a place. Right, if you walk into any apartment in the Quad Cities that's not furnished, it's just white walls. Like, it's just a place. But until you make it a home, you decorate, you put your stuff in, you make it your own, the beauty of that makes it homey. It generates this, this magnetic pull that says, I just want to be there because it, it stirs up delight in my soul. Now, we, we learn through the Old Testament as we follow the narrative of the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God himself dwells among his people, that God loves to be worshipped in beautiful places. In fact, this is one of the greatest things about being in a, in a, a, a chapel like this with the vaulted ceilings that gives you the sense of, of, of transcendence, that it, the room itself like pulls you up and makes you look up. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for us to take care of this facility that God has given us to, to raise this 30K by May, to create a beautiful place for people to come into and to worship God together. See, God loves being worshipped in beautiful places, and heaven is no different because it's decorated with the most beautiful stones, the streets of gold. It's beautiful. That's the beauty of our new home. For many people, if this was all that heaven was, Right, where all the, all the sad things come untrue, where it's beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. Like they would be happy with that. Listen, but if you're a Christian, you cannot be happy with just that. In fact, if we're offered that version of heaven as Christians, we ought to reject it, not because it's not flashy enough, not because it's not beautiful enough, not because it's not joyful enough, because it's missing the most important part about heaven. It's missing the essence of home. And the essence of home isn't exclusively in its appearance or presentation. The essence of home is in who occupies it. What kind of home would you have if your family wasn't there? If it wasn't a place where you could invite friends and family into? It wouldn't feel like home at all. But here, the number one defining factor of heaven is that God is there with us. In fact, in this life, we say, take this world, but give me Jesus. We could also say in the next life, you can take heaven, but give me Jesus. Because Jesus himself is my heaven. Look at verse 3 here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell 
with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then it's God in his presence that f- brings out all this other stuff, right, right? The security, the safety, the flourishing of heaven. It's God himself. You know why heaven's beautiful? Because God is beautiful. All this stuff about the imagery of heaven is, is taken straight from the beginning of the book of Revelation where we see God in his own beauty, where he's radiant in glory. The reason why heaven is beautiful is because God has transferred his beauty to heaven. And verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. You'll have the security, the comfort of heaven. You'll have the beauty of heaven. And you'll have the essence of heaven. Look at this. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's the relationship. It's the relationship, the the intimate relationship we have with God. This is everything. In fact, in Psalm 84, as David is writing, he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He says, this is better than anything else in life. Even if I just get a little nugget of it, it's better than anything else. But when David wrote that song, he was talking about being in the physical temple, right? The temple, the the, the, the tabernacle. The place where God's presence was dwelling among his people. But now that means something entirely different in the new heavens, new earth. Look at verse 22. And I saw No temple in the city. Now listen, if you were a Jew, you would be crushed by this. Because the temple, the fact that God dwelt among you was the the thing that made you who you were. And here there is no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, excuse me, for its temple, the city, the temple of the city is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. See, there's no more temple because the entire city of the New Jerusalem is where God dwells. There's not one inch where God is not present. And what this tells us is that God has reestablished himself as the center of the universe. His radiance shines throughout the entire city. There is no shadow. His his light is cast and there's no shadow. There is no variation. His radiance shines through Jesus who is the lamp of his life and it so powerfully and steadfastly shines that the sun, right, what we would say is sort of the source of life on our planet, becomes irrelevant. That, That there is no longer night. You see, this, God's presence is the essence of heaven. If God isn't there, 
then heaven becomes a fancier version of hell. But not only is God there with us, but, but we bring something to the table. Right? We, we, we bring in our very best for God. Look at uh, verse, what was it, 26. They, that's the redeemed people of God, will bring into it, the city, the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false. Now, now what is this? What is the glory and the honor of the nations? Now, in a very vast sense, this is, this is our worship. Like, well, we come into the city and we bring our, our, our heartfelt worship, but this isn't just worship. This is the very best of our cultures. Now, we've seen before how God is, is redeeming a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and, and he's bringing them to himself united by the blood of Christ. And so from every corner of the earth comes in people who have been in, in, embedded in a culture. Now, you can look at our culture and see how there's a lot of bad things, a lot of sinful things in our culture, but there are also a lot of good things about our culture. A lot of things that, that represent God's goodness and demonstrate his, his glory. And so here, as the people come in, they bring in with them redeemed and glorified versions of what is best of our culture. Let me speculate for a moment. That means there's going to be Thai food in heaven. That means every shoe is going to be made out of Italian leather. That means American football will be played and there will be no issues with head trauma. Everybody's going to like jazz music. Street art will be legal. Everybody was wearing sweatpants all the time, and nobody's got a problem with it. We can ride motorcycles. We can drive fast without having to worry about dying, right? And yeah, you, could, you can speculate your own thing. Those are just kind of things that I'm thinking of. Like, the very best of every culture brought into the city of God. But listen, it's also very clear that nothing unclean or subpar or even mediocre will enter this glorious city. Right, verse 27 says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it or no, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false. And actually, if you jump up to verse 8, it kind of provides a, a, a list of disqualifications. But as for the cowardly, these are the people who are detestable or false. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Listen. Corrupt people don't enter the kingdom of God. Corrupt people will never know the feeling of what it means to cross the threshold of home. Now you might feel good about passing some of these requirements, Right? Nobody's murdered anything that I know, anyone that I know of. But when we get into things like being liars, sexually immoral, being cowards, being faithless, I don't, I don't think that there's a single person in this room that would be qualified based upon their ability to pass that checklist. And, and so the question is, are we, are we out 
do, do we not get to enter into the new home that's been prepared for us? In verse seven, the promises that the one who conqueror, conquers will have this heritage, that they'll inherit this new home. And when we look at this, when we think about conquering, this does not mean that we never sin. That's not what it means to be a conqueror. Yes, as you live life in step with Jesus, in step with the Spirit, there's a sense where the sin in you is being put to death, where you become more and more Christ-like, but there's never a moment where you are without sin. So to be a conqueror means that you live a life in pursuit of holiness, but in your failings, where you've missed the mark, you live a life of constant faith and repentance. This is what this means. It means that we believe the gospel. It means that we believe that Jesus left the comfort, the beauty, and the essence of heaven which he had since eternity past and will have for eternity future, he left the comfort, the beauty, the essence of heaven to give us the very home that he was kicked out of. Actually, he wasn't kicked out of. He, was willing, he, he willingly left. He set aside the comfort, the protection of heaven, and he entered into a hostile and cursed world. He traded in the beauty of heaven for the blandness of this world. And ultimately on the cross, Jesus lost the essence of heaven when he was forsaken by the Heavenly Father, where he lost that relationship, that connection that he had with God. But in doing so, by, by Jesus' loss, we gained everything. See, Jesus, when we believe in him, he, he takes our sin and our brokenness, everything that would disqualify us from entering into this new home. Jesus takes it upon himself, and he went to the cross, and he paid the price for that. But then he also gives us his own righteousness, that when our faith is securely placed on Jesus, that we are credited with the perfect record that we are capable of inheriting this new home. See, in Jesus, in, in taking our home in hell, he paid the price, but God, in his power, raised him up from the dead. He resurrected him. And so it is by God's resurrecting power that we have this new home in heaven, that we too are raised with Christ. So that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever puts their faith upon him, would no longer be in exile. Who would no longer be a stranger with this deep desire for home that we could never attain here on our own. But we would find an eternal home with God in heaven. This passage ends... There are people who are not going to be admitted into the kingdom of God. There's people who are going to miss out on the holy city, the new Jerusalem. They aren't going to feel what it feels like to be home. Listen, and as Christians, that ought to concern us. 
that that ought to light a fire under our belly for living on mission and proclaiming the good news of what God has done because everybody you know has this desire for home and they're chasing it. And they're chasing it hard and they might not even realize it. And and like uh, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. That's true of everybody. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will receive this gift of hope. And Pastor Justin said something last week in the sermon that I thought was gold, so I'm going to steal it. I'm going to tell you what it is. He says, our faith is the ink in the Lamb's book of life. Our faith is the ink in the Lamb's book of life. Because when our faith is in Jesus... When our faith is in Jesus, that means that we have become and we've inherited the kingdom. That home has become ours. And in fact, that, that there's sort of a reverse uh, deposit that happens here, okay? When our faith is in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. And Scripture tells us that this Holy Spirit is the assurance, it's the down payment that one day we will be reunited with God himself in this new city. And so in a very real sense, not not in a full and complete sense, but in a very real sense, we have access to the essence of heaven right now. We might not be able to taste the beauty of heaven we're going to be able to taste the, the comfort of heaven, but we have the essence of heaven available to us right now. And this table right here, where Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shared, his shed was proof of it. In fact, it's so, so interesting that God would give us a physical, a, a physical way to remember a spiritual thing. Right? That totally makes sense with the kingdom of God being both physical and spiritual. And then every time we partake in this Lord's Supper, every time our minds are set toward heaven and long for the home that we were promised and we have assurance because the Spirit is inside of us that we will reach that end as long as we stay faithful and true to Jesus, living a life of repentance and faith, clinging to the gospel. And each time we take partake, partake of this meal, we're kind of like homesick kids. You, you know, like, and if you've ever been a camp counselor, you know what I'm talking about, right? Summer camp, kids go off, they're away for a week, they get homesick, probably about Tuesday night, really wanting home. Mom, come get me. That's, that's a pretty good picture of what we're like, that we just have this desire for home. And, and there's nothing to be ashamed of because we know the glory, the beauty, the comfort, the essence. We can't find it here in this life. It's in the one to come. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we, we and I, hope, I hope our appetites are wet this morning for the new heavens, new earth. I pray, Father, that there is a growing desire in our hearts for that day where we will be with you face to face, where we sung about it, where there's no longer need for faith because our faith has become sight. 
Father, I pray that this future reality of heaven would change the way that we live now. Would we strive to be a community, to create a culture of comfort, of security, of, of uh, provision and, and sustenance. I pray, Father, that we would be a community that, that demonstrates the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the coming age in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we, we love one another. And I pray, Father, that you would give us a disinterest in any version of heaven that doesn't include you. That our hearts would be so strong and desirous of you that it would press us into the union that we have with the Holy Spirit right now. That, that you are dwelling inside of your people. Father, would you make us more beautiful? Would you make us better missionaries? Would you make us a people who demonstrates, a city on a hill, who demonstrates the city that is to come. And we praise you for all this because we know this is not by our work, not by our hands that the city is coming, that the new heavens, new earth is coming. Unless the Lord does build the house, the labors toil in vain. Father, we say this is, this is your work. We praise you, we honor you, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.